Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss updates from Ukraine and around the world, and, with our history correspondent Daniel Kapura, look at the invasion of Ukraine in the light of the Second World War. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 7th of December, day 287. And today, I'm joined by our assistant foreign editor, Venetia Rainey, our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, and senior reporter and history correspondent, Daniel Kapuro. I started by asking Venetia for the latest news from Ukraine. So I'm going to start in Russia, if that's all right. What we saw um, late yesterday was a third Russian airfield being bombed. Ukraine hasn't taken responsibility, but I think it's safe to say that they are very happy about it. So we can infer some stuff from that. This is, as I said, the third Russian airfield to be struck. We had two hit on Monday by drones. um, And now this one in Kursk. Um, Officials released pictures of lots of black smoke above an airfield rising. The governor said it was an oil storage tank that had gone up in flames and that there were no casualties. Um, We don't know many more details than that. But this really shows that Ukraine is starting to hit behind... Russia's border, Russia's official border. Um, Blinken came out late last night and said, you know, the US is certainly not encouraging or enabling Ukraine to do this, which heavily suggests that they believe that Ukraine is behind these sorts of strikes. Um, We've also heard that Russia is building its defensive positions inside its own border. Whether this is, you know, propaganda to try and rally an increasingly weary Russian population against the potential of an invasion and sort of talk up that threat. We haven't actually heard that Ukraine is going to invade Russia or or whether whether the Russians do think that they need to fortify that border a bit more, given that there have been lots of drone strikes. There's no, we haven't heard of any personnel going across the border, but lots of unmanned drone strikes happening in Russia. Um, Remains to be seen. Um, so, so that's all, all very interesting. We've also hearing continuing rumours in Russia of a second mobilisation. Russia has really been struggling with manpower in Ukraine. Um, they are having to send almost completely untrained troops out to the front line to be put through what's often referred to as the meat grinder. Um, and we're seeing that especially in Bakhmut. Um, this town, previously about 70,000 people, has really become the epicenter of fighting in the east of Ukraine. Um, and the fighting there has been absolutely brutal. Some of the pictures that have been coming out, our listeners might have heard, um, we were talking about how it was similar to Passchendaele in World War One. 
um, you know, really ground leveled to almost nothing, just trenches and mud and the, the remaining branches and trunks of blasted off trees. This is really the most medieval form of fighting um, that you can think of in the 21st century. Um, and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers on both sides are dying every day. Russia needs more men. Ukraine so far seems to have a ready supply. Um, Russia has so far denied that it's going to be issuing a second mobilization order, but those rumors just won't go away and we've been reporting on it for the last um, few weeks. One more thing to flag quickly, um, Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, has been talking today um, and he was saying that Russia is trying to to freeze the war so that it can regroup um, and I think that's probably accurate. As I was saying, the sort of mobilisation concerns feed into this idea that their troops are just not ready, aren't able to take the fight to Ukraine in any real way. It's been loss after loss after loss for Russia in the last few months. Kharkiv, Kherson. Um, and if Russia wants to regain momentum, then it needs some time to regroup, train up its troops, build back up morale, get together some proper winter kit. And so that's what Russia's trying to do, with the exception of Bakhmut, which we believe the fighting there is largely being driven by the Wagner Group, um, Putin's sort of pet militia, frankly, at this point, um, which is trying to hand him a victory, a much needed victory, perhaps before Christmas is maybe what they're aiming at by levelling this um, not terribly important strategic wise and um, strategy wise city. Um, so that's the latest from Russia and Ukraine. Thank you very much, Venetia. Francis, can I turn to you? Um, you've been looking at uh, the energy front in Western Europe, and there's also some reports um, from uh, European diplomacy around the EU price cap on Russian oil. Would you like to talk us through these points? Certainly. Well, thanks, David, and good afternoon to our listeners around the world. I'll start, as you say, with the energy front, because this has been something, of course, that we've been following very, very closely for months now. And there's been some quite interesting analysis that's come out this morning from a group of experts on the energy market. And they are saying that it will be possible for Europe to make it through this winter without cutting off gas users, despite, of course, the heavily reduced Russian supplies. So... That, of course, would tally with what we've been saying for a while now, that it would appear that the market has adapted to the high level concern that there would be demands from across Europe for users of energy, consumers of energy to be uh, rationing uh, energy in, in homes. And of course, we are seeing advice from governments that due to the cost of, uh, of living crisis and this um, energy crisis as well, that people should be paying more sensitivity to the amount of energy that they're using. But it has not reached the level that some feared where that would be mandatory and that it would be far, far more severe and that there would be blackouts, for instance. So some quite promising uh, news there. And... Uh, Obviously, it's worth saying that there is quite a big discrepancy between how different governments are reacting to this. I spoke a little bit last week about some of the fears about how different countries may face higher casualties as a consequence of, of the energy front, if we articulate it in those terms. I mean, prices have been frozen, for instance, for customers in uh, Spain and France, I think. But in Belgium, for, uh, for instance, other suppliers have passed down those higher costs to consumers. So you can see that there's there's a difference in 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 reaction, of course, when you pass that down to consumers, they really, really will feel it. Here in Britain, there has been uh, support provided by the government, not extensive support, but support that's going to help pe tide people over, um, particularly heavy users of energy. So this will help... Uh, 
mediate some of the most severe ramifications that were feared of this. But as I say, the most interesting and top line is this belief now that Europe will scrape through however challenging the winter is, which is, of course, a positive development. Just also remaining on the energy front for for a little bit longer. Um, of course, on Monday we saw that the uh, I, the EU price cap on Russian oil came in, and I know that that was spoken about in detail on Monday when I was off. But um, just to to update on that, there's already quite significant evidence that the market is being quite heavily disrupted by this. Tankers are piling up off Turkey after Ankara is demanding much more stringent insurance paperwork as a consequence of the. Uh, this of this price cap and I, I won't go into all of the complexities of this but in essence they're trying to prevent boats that might be transporting uh, this oil um who are under um claiming to be eu sanctioned gas when it's actually not because of this they're trying to prevent those ships from um from Im- disembarking and this is delaying and holding up the whole process and so it's just an an example i think of how actually this is already having quite significant impacts on russian ability to to trade Um, just one last story on the on the energy and gas side of things Uh, the us is to double its gas exports to the uk it announced uh, earlier this morning of course, uh, on the back of this major test of energy resilience, um, this is, of course, meant to provide, I think, uh, further evidence that the US is going to support Europe this winter as a consequence of the, the war in Ukraine. But also in the UK's case, I think it's just showing in, uh, support for what's often articulated as as the United States' closest ally on on the continent uh, or in the European space. Um, And I think Rishi Sunak has been, the British Prime Minister, of course, has been making a lot of overtures to the United States in recent weeks. And I think this should be seen as a positive sign that things are are moving in a positive direction. And just one final word on Zaporizhia, because I know some of our listeners have been following this very closely. Um, There is still evidence of of, of continued military activity there. Drones and missiles have rained down on two villages overnight, injured three people. People, including a 15-year-old girl. And of course, that's very concerning to those who are monitoring Zaporizhia very closely because of the volatility of that site, of course, it being a prominent nuclear power plant. So that's the uh, the energy latest. But of course, this is becoming of an increased significance now that we're entering a much colder spell. Well, thank you very much uh, for all of that, Francis. Um, Francis, can I just stay with you on one more story from, from Europe? Um, let's move into politics. Uh, this is the the story that on Tuesday Hungary has blocked a 15.5 billion uh, pound uh, uh, package of European Union aid to Ukraine uh, to well you tell us why what's happening there well yes uh, I've touched on this uh, I think it was about a week ago this ongoing saga of uh, Hungary blocking money to uh, Ukraine whether they would do it or not and there was a lot of speculation that they might do so but they didn't initially because uh, they were clearly hoping that the European Commission, which has been threatening certain, not sanctions, but um, threatening not to uh, give certain money to, to Hungary uh, out of the EU budget as a consequence of it, what they say is an erosion of democratic standards and a crackdown on uh, on gay and trans rights, for instance. And Hungary was still providing military support for, sorry, financial support for Ukraine um, 
uh, in the hope, I think, the last ditch hope that they would not receive these um, this slap on the wrist from the European Commission. But now that we've heard that they will not be uh, providing the financial support for Hungary, the European Commission, the Hungary have now blocked this 15.5 billion in EU aid to Ukraine in a bid, we understand, to force Brussels to release these frozen EU funds to Budapest. So you can imagine the kind of consternation this has caused. Hungary are claiming that it's got nothing to do with Ukraine, that they're just trying to make it very clear that, you know, they they envision a slightly different future for Europe, one that's built on strong member states instead of huge piles of common debt. So they're claiming it's due to financial strategy. But you can imagine that quite senior figures in the EU are saying that this is a consequence of Viktor Orban, the Hungarian Prime Minister, having a very soft approach to Vladimir Putin. And of course, Viktor Orban has been very heavily critical of the EU sanctions against Moscow following the invasion. So no doubt this will be an ongoing saga now, but it does show at quite a critical juncture as we enter winter, uh, the first signs of quite significant cracking within the EU on this uh, issue of support for Ukraine. But as I say, I don't think this should be seen as a as something more broad necessarily about Ukraine specifically, but it is an example of where one of the weakest partners on the unitary side of, of supporting Ukraine is, I suppose, uh, because of their own internal political disputes with, with the EU, using Ukraine and the significance that is given to Ukraine within the EU at the moment as a leverage point. So, as I say, it, it's significant for reasons that are more complicated than Ukraine, but no doubt one that will cause some concern um, in the European Union at this moment because it will have ramifications on, on approaching the Ukraine issue in the coming weeks and months. Thank you very much uh, for all of that, Francis. Um, Dan Kapura, can I turn to you? And just just by note of explanation as to why I think we're doing this now, um, we realised why, uh, well, as we were preparing the notes for, for this episode, that this is actually the 200th recording that we've done. This is the 200th um, episode of U- Ukraine The Latest. So just very quickly, thank you all of you for listening and thank you all of the people we've interviewed and spoken to for all of um, your thoughts and your expertise. But we thought it might be a good moment for us to take a little bit of a step back and think about the invasion and what's happening and just see if we can uh, tease some uh, analysis out of this, looking looking back and comparing it with, with other periods of history. So Dan Kapura, you are our history correspondent. Um, you've, had, you've been looking at the invasion, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine and just thinking about the Second World War as well. So can you talk us through some of your, some of your thoughts? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on again. I think we'll start, we'll start narrow and then sort of zoom out from there. We were looking this week, you know, at these, this trio of raids on, on air bases in, uh, on Russian territory, um, many hundreds of kilometers, miles from uh, the border, which has sort of shown perhaps this surprising Ukrainian capability that we don't know about. Maybe it's drones, it seems to be the most likely candidate. And, you know, earlier raids that we saw during the war, so the sort of famous hel- attack helicopter raid just across the border, the first sort of real strike against Russian territory. And, and what it really brings to mind is is perhaps, a, at least in this country, a forgotten story from the Second World War, which is the uh, the Doolittle Raid. It's sort of in the news at the moment because the uh, the Americans have finally uh, publicly unveiled their replacement for the B-2 Spirit stealth bomber, this um, sort of flying wing. So the new one is the B-21 Raider, specifically named after the Doolittle Raiders. Now, anyone who's seen the, the, the slightly terrible... Uh, ben Affleck, uh, Kate Beckinsale film from 2001, Pearl Harbor, will be familiar with the Doolittle Raids. But effectively, in the aftermath of uh, the Pearl Harbor attacks, which sank a a significant number of uh, American ships in, in Hawaii, um, 
in a surprise attack that sort of launched the war in the Pacific from the Americans' perspective and caused a real severe blow to American morale. President Roosevelt was desperate to strike back, basically, to prove that the United States was not impotent and could hit back uh, against the Japanese. Uh, now, uh, Japan uh, is a long way away from the United States. It's a long way away from Hawaii, even. And so the Americans' ability to to uh, strike back was incredibly limited. Uh, later in the war, they would obviously have various island bases from which to operate. But you had this sort of daring uh, raid, really quite uh, spectacular, where they took B-25 Liberator uh, medium bombers, really stripped them of everything, machine guns, um, supplies, any kind of excess weight. And the plan was to sail them uh, on an aircraft carrier as close as possible to Japan, take off, uh, bomb uh, mainland Japan, bomb Tokyo, uh, supposedly strategically important uh, industrial sites and of course uh, you can't land a b-25 which is a fairly large aircraft back on an aircraft carrier so they then carried on flying to, to china uh, which at the time was was uh, an american ally uh, and crash landed uh, in china and it was this kind of all or nothing attempt to strike a blow to uh, the Japanese and the Japanese homeland at a time when the United States didn't really have this capability. Now, I think the reason it's sort of an interesting comparison with, with what's going on in Ukraine is, is it's very hard to tell, obviously, what the um, the strategic and even tactical impact of these of these raids in Russian territory are. We we believe that some strategic bombers, the T-22s and T-95s, have been damaged, potentially. But again, Russia has a few dozen of each of those aircraft, so it's, it's not particularly clear what the the direct impact is. But of course, the ability to um, to raid, to attack, to cause explosions, basically, somewhere that your enemy thought was impregnable, is is hugely psychologically important in a war. It was the same with the raid just across the border, that daring raid with the uh, with the attack helicopters. That Ukraine is really showing its ability to strike uh, the Russian motherland and Russian civilians who maybe are ignoring the war, pretending it's not there, choosing not to see it, will find that much harder to do and, and perhaps find themselves worried about their own safety, which puts pressure on, on Putin. And then, of course, you have the unknown of, of potential uh, strategic changes. So the impact of the Doolittle raid was, was relatively limited. It killed about 50 people. It didn't do a huge amount of damage to Japanese industry. It had a big psychological impact. But one argument put forward is that it emboldened the Japanese to try and take out the American carrier fleet, which really pushed them to engage in the Battle of Midway which turned out to be a terrible disaster for the Japanese, a big turning point in the war, and enabled the Americans to go on the front foot. So you have this question of, even if these raids seem small right now, will they force Putin into strategic miscalculations, force him to redeploy troops at home, move air defences, or, you know, perhaps, as we've seen with other attacks, for example, on the Crimea bridge, will it, will it you know, in a fit of rage, will he, will he lash out and potentially miscalculate? So, so I think that's kind of you know, uh, an interesting little historical parallel, if you like, there. But but zooming out slightly to the, to the bigger picture, the Doolittle raid was a precursor in the Pacific for something that we saw also on an, on an enormous scale in in the European theatre of the war, which was this mass bombing of civilians, which during to an extent during the war, but certainly afterwards, became hugely controversial. Big questions of of whether the Allies were were correct to do what they had. Big questions of whether it was ever right to bomb civilians, to deliberately target civilians. And and the the names of these operations and the cities they they struck, Dresden, Operation Gomorrah in Hamburg, where they deliberately created firestorms, became became infamous. And and when a statue to Arthur Harris, who was a head of bomber command, was was unveiled on the Strand in London. It was graffitied in the 90s. It was incredibly controversial. And it wasn't until 
I believe 2012, I have the year slightly wrong there, that, that a memorial was finally built to the actual men who served in Bomber Command. So it was always this kind of, this difficult question of, of, of whether the Allies had made the right decision. But the ultimate sort of conclusion of that logic culminated in, in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the decision that actually, yes, it is right in the long run, in, in, in the eyes of, of the American military at the time, to take out entire cities and huge civilian populations if it meant bringing an end to the war. Now, in the current era, we have shifted hugely away from that. Now, there haven't really been large-scale wars on, on the European continent since the Second World War until now. But what we've seen in the last 20 years, particularly with the United States, is this move towards sort of precision, almost surgical, I think the Americans would like to call it, attacks with precision-guided munitions, with drones, with Tomahawk cruise missiles, all these kind of things. And, and, and obviously... Uh, as with all these things, there's, there's a bit of a bit of mythology to it. The United States' attacks are never as clean as as they sometimes hope and try, and or perhaps you know, depending on your viewpoint, pretend there are civilian casualties. But the Americans have always argued that they've always made efforts to minimise this. So you saw with the with the assassination of the number two, formerly number two, and the leader Al Qaeda, I believe it was this year, that Biden was only convinced once he saw that he could be taken out on his balcony with a single missile. But what we have with Putin's war in Ukraine is this kind of strange, perhaps unforeseen amalgamation of the two where, for all its flaws, Russia does have the ability to fight precision warfare. It does have precision-guided munitions, even if their supplies are dwindling and even if they're not as, as precise and effective as the American ones. But they're resorting to this tactic that perhaps we, we thought had been left behind in the, in the mid-20th century of targeting civilians, of of terror bombing effectively, because they're using these precision munitions to take out Ukraine's electricity grid. And of course, as we've we've heard many times on this podcast, that doesn't just mean power cuts, it means no heating, it means no water, because running water is reliant on on electricity run pumps. So it's almost this this reversion to to a nineteen forties um strategy. And it it opens up a lot of questions, you know, once you you decide that such strategies are, are um permissible or justified, where do you draw the line? You know, the West has been fairly unanimous in its condemnation of what Putin's doing. But if he, in his own thinking, thinks this is justified, where does he draw a line? You know, we've seen this question, this with the question of, of nuclear weapons and whether whether Putin would really be willing to use them. If you're willing to freeze and, and starve death effectively and, and, and to try and force them into being refugees, what more might you be willing to do, particularly if your your ability to, to fire precision munitions runs out? And, and you're left with, with blunter instruments. And we saw that in the Second World War, that, that even the good guys are willing to take this logic to its extreme. So it's really an open question. But of course, at the same time, many of the unanswered questions about the bombing war in the Second World War are still hotly debated today, are, are, are whether it actually worked. Now, the, the atomic bombing of Japan clearly did work because the Japanese surrendered. Whether the cost was worth it is, remains open to debate. But it worked. But uh, the European bombing wars and, and the earlier fire bombings of, of Japan, Tokyo, remain deeply controversial among historians as to what the impact was. So historians like Max Hastings argue that it was ineffective, um, that really they didn't do very much to damage German industrial capacity and that they didn't really affect morale. They, they perhaps stiffened it or that, you know, what difference civilian morale make in, in a society in which uh, dissent was not. Uh, public dissent was not possible. Other historians argue the opposite. It's probably too big a debate to to go into in any depth. But again, we see this in Ukraine, where there is, to an extent, defiance. Um, and obviously, people can't defy 
practicality and reality and 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 if we reach a situation where there's no running water in Kiev it will be very very difficult for people to stay um and something will need to be done um obviously prevention is 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 better than a cure but what we've seen so far from the Ukrainian people is is defiance and and um signs of this terror bombing really doesn't work that's absolutely fascinating. Very quickly, Dan, can I just ask you, um, we were talking about, about some of your notes before before coming on and, and, and talking about this. And something that I've heard from a lot of people is this idea that one of Putin's sort of maybe unexplained objectives is is to take us back to what he sees as the sort of the good old days uh, where, where, where the sort of Soviets... Um, hierarchy ran everything you know i mean you see this in his in his in the gangster state he he runs i'm just wondering what you think whether whether he he in his own mind hadn't moved on from that sort of second world war way of thinking that these terror bombings were an effective tool as as you said they were used by all sides um in in the second world war and actually what we've seen what we've seen in in the in the past few in the in the past 9 months is that the rest of the world actually has moved on and that and that and that and that's demonstrated in in the extreme revulsion and rejection of 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 the targeting of civilians i just wondered if you had thoughts on that absolutely and i think you know there's there's uh Yes, certainly context is everything. And, you know, with the with the American drone strikes and, and the like, there was always the question of the justification and, and the justification of the war. And, you know, we're not fighting Nazis anymore. No one outside of Russia, I think, no one serious outside of Russia thinks that, that this is a, a justified war. And so how could the how could the ends ever possibly justify the means? But yes, you, you were effectively seeing, you know, we saw this with Putin's approach to history where, you know, he he basically has this almost 19th century Bismarckian approach of, you know, great powers do what they want and they have spheres of influence and effectively rejecting 70, 80 years of, of consensus on, on the importance of self-determination and the sovereignty of, of nations of any and all sizes. And so in, in a lot of ways, it's really not surprising that he sees any means to his ends as justifiable and sees it as perfectly legitimate to, to terrorize civilians. I think also perhaps, um, you know, he taps into quite heavily the 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 mythology, the legend of the Great Patriotic War, as 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 Russians and and many people in post-Soviet states know the the Eastern Front, the Second World War, and of course during that war, horrendous atrocities took place and, and enormous sacrifices, and the Soviet Union really did just throw people at the problem, and you can see that with his approach, with the Russian military's approach, with its own population, with its own soldiers, the way they just. Uh, treat them like meat to be shoved into the grinder in, in places like that. So, yeah, I think it's it's the Second World War clearly looms large in, in Putin's thinking. And, and uh, he did not, uh, has not moved with the rest of the world in, in his attitude to war and his attitude to geopolitics. Francis, I know you, you wanted to come in and, and add your thoughts to this. Well, yes, I totally echo what Daniel was just saying there. I think... I remember one of my most abiding memories of when I went to Russia a few years ago was the sense in which this is a country where the Second World War, which to us may feel like a, an event that was many, many decades ago, as of course it was, uh, albeit a vitally important one. In Russia, it, it's much more prominent in the consciousness of the state. Uh, it's, it really feels as if it was fought 10 years ago rather than, than over 70 
And of course, that has an impact on the culture and attitude to uh, on military matters um, and on foreign affairs. I mean, of course, as we spoke, I've spoken about now for months, the reason that uh, the Ukrainians and Zelensky were articulated as Nazis by Putin is because of the power of that war in the consciousness. And it was believed to be an effective means of, of gaining support for the war. Now, of course, as we've talked about recently, there is evidence that support is declining. And indeed, the messaging has also eroded about them being drug-addled Nazis, which was the uh, term that was often used. And so I think that is uh, significant. I think also as well, just touching on something else that Dan said, is um, the way in which we in the West, I think, have been rather naive about the kind of moral universe that Putin is operating in on military matters. We have thought that he was operating as this sort of chess grandmaster moving pieces around the board, that he was still operating in the same rational realpolitik universe that we, you know, often, if not live in, but understand in the West. But actually, if you look at the wars that Putin has been engaging in now for decades, they are not and have not been utilising the normal moral use, um, uh, moral views of war for almost ever since he's been in power. You look at Chechnya, you look at Syria, of course, most recently. And this was a war that was fought in the most absolutely brutal uh, manner possible, as Hamish de Breton-Gordon has spoken about on this podcast many times. The, the kind of destruction of cities that is being wrought in Ukraine was something that the very commander now in charge of the Russian forces was involved in, in an attempt to back up Bashir al-Assad in his fighting in that war. Uh, so, you know, we have not been watching Russia closely enough. And what may seem shocking to us is probably not shocking at all to the commanders who have been thinking and have been commanding Russian troops and, and, and have been involved in foreign wars now for some time. So I think that is an example of the disconnect between uh, Western leaders and, and, and Russian ones is on this fundamental question about what is permissible in war. And, uh, you know, I keep thinking back to when that uh, plane was shot down over Ukraine that killed uh, almost 300 um, innocent civilians. Um, that was a, a classic example that showed how the very fact that that was conceivable to happen by... Uh, so-called separatists in the Donbass. Uh, the, the fact that was even conceivable to happen showed that certain risks were being made by the Russian state in how they were operating militarily. And that should have been a huge red flag, I think, uh, morally and politically as to how Putin was willing to operate. And that's before you even bring in this vast scale of political assassinations and murders across European soil, including here in Britain, uh, by the Russian uh, intelligence services. So really, this shouldn't come as a shock to us. But the fact that it does, I think, speaks volumes. Well, thank you, Francis. Um, Dan, can I come back to, to you just for one final point about industry uh, and industrialization and arms supplies? I think that's quite apposite considering uh, how often we talk about uh, Western, uh, often Western, sometimes not, of course, uh, supplies uh, of armaments to Ukraine. And what, what do you see? How do you see the parallels with, with the Second World War there? Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So um, just, you know, for sort of slightly broader context, 
you know, we're going into winter and and whether it's weather related or not, the war's slowing down a bit. There's a pause, both sides sort of consolidating, rebuilding capacity. And obviously there's still confidence within Ukrainian command, or at least public confidence, that they can end this war quickly. But as it looks likely to go into 2023 and beyond, possibly beyond, the question of a long war arises and the question of, of how do you continue to supply it. Now, we've seen the United States really going all around the world and, and negotiating left, right and centre to an extent for old Soviet munitions, which the West, mostly the West does not make one or two NATO members. I think Bulgaria have some capacity to manufacture it, but very, very limited and just trying to get hold of any that they can to send to Ukraine so they can keep using their, their Soviet era artillery. But even to an extent with the uh, with NATO standard artillery, the 155 shells, you saw South Korea wanting to, appeared to be wanting to support Ukraine, but obviously can't for, for various legal constitutional reasons. But it has sold shells to the United States and to, on the explicit basis that they not be used in Ukraine. But of course, if the Americans have purchased those, they can then send some of their own that they already had over to Ukraine. But what we're seeing is is basically whether the lean post-Cold War military industry in the West is capable of sustaining a long war. You know, the amount of artillery shells and rockets being used in Ukraine, I think, has staggered even the most pessimistic experts. You know, huge, huge amounts of, of ammunition being churned through. And, you know, there's a report a couple of weeks out by Rusi looking at the early stage of the war, the kind of the decisive moments, Battle of Kiev and, and how they were won. One of the big major findings was that despite, you know, the kind of social media and the and the media obsession with, with drones and with N-laws and javelins and other anti-tank missiles, really what, what stopped that convoy, what kept Kiev safe, what turned the Russians back was that it just has an immense amount of artillery. I think that, you know, according to the report, if you look at tube artillery, as they call it, which is sort of traditional artillery that you would think of with a long barrel and rocket artillery combined that Ukraine had more than Britain, France, Italy, Spain and Poland put together. So in a lot of ways, old fashioned, but whether it's artillery or end laws or uh, precision guided munitions, you're still looking at the same question, which is, can they be manufactured uh, quickly enough to replace stockpiles? Because that's what we're relying on really is, is stockpiles. Um, and this is where, you know, the Second World War comparison comes in. So, you know, the United States was famously dubbed the, the Arsenal Democracy. Lots of people know about the Lend-Lease program, where the Americans supplied Britain and the Soviet Union predominantly with huge amounts of, of, of material and, and, and ammunitions and ammunition over over several years, basically kept them in the fight, allowed them to continue fighting fighting Nazi Germany. And, you know, the traditional story that's told is that, well, the United States ramped up industrial production, massively dedicated its its economy to the war and was able to churn out huge amounts of products. And, and to an extent, that's true. Um, you know, the kind of the, the emblematic symbol of, of this is, is the Liberty ships. An immense number were produced, something like three every two days over a four-year period, the most of any one kind of ship ever produced. And these were effectively civilian merchant convoy ships that would replace all the ships that kept being sunk by by German U-boats to keep Britain fed. But the reality of this arsenal of democracy kind of legend, I wouldn't call it mythology because it did happen, is that it took a lot longer to ramp up and it was a closer run thing than people realised. So really, you know, it began in 1938 and it didn't reach its apogee until 1944, which is when the United States was really able to kind of lean into the war, both in the Pacific and Europe. And so that's six long years. And, and you know, a good example of this is that um, if you look at capital ships, so big ones, battleships, cruisers, aircraft carriers, none of the ships that were ordered after the Pearl Harbor attack on the United States actually served in the war because it took so long for them to, to come online. So actually the ships that 
that did serve in the war, if they didn't already exist or they weren't already in the United States, the United States Navy, the, the new ones coming in had actually been ordered well before 1941. And of course, in the present day, that raises a lot of questions of how can we continue to supply Ukraine with sort of basic munitions, uh, 155 shells, the more sophisticated ones, you know, javelins, um, end laws and the like. And also, of course, particularly the United States, but NATO members more generally have to maintain their own stockpiles, maintain their own ability to fight another war. Now, for the Europeans, maybe that seems less urgent because the likelihood of Russia being able to do anything outside of Ukraine is very limited. But of course, the Americans are looking over their shoulders at China and uh, Taiwan and the issue there, and they need to be able to keep things in reserve. And of course, the issue with China as well is that while we all hope it won't happen, you have to prepare for, for what's known as a general war. And, you know, there's a, a, a CSIS, a Center for Strategic and International Studies report last year, which which looked into American military industrial capacity. And, and in a lot of ways, quite worrying. You know, during the Cold War, there was this idea of industrial surge. There was spare capacity in the economy. There was It was designed in a way, and there were government policies uh, to encourage the ability to turn it on, basically, if there are war, to switch civilian production, production to ramp up production of, of all kinds of key armaments, materiel. And it was abandoned, like a lot of things. You know, the peace dividend, it was abandoned at the end of the Cold War. And to an extent, you know, there's renewed interest in, in rebuilding it, but, but progress is slow. And to an extent, it's not there. So when we talk about, you know, the Liberty ships, these very, very straightforward, unarmed vessels, you know, and that's why you were able to churn out three every two days. But you look now at the complexity and the difficulty of these, of replacing ships, you know, to use an example of, of something big and difficult. Uh, so CSIS estimated that to replace just the 11 aircraft carriers that the United States has uh, would take 50 years um, at current sort of production rates. So that kind of gives you an idea of, of the difficulties that the West is facing. Now, I was talking to you earlier before we came on, David, about this, that, you know, we, we had over the last two years, we've had this shock with COVID that has really changed how people think about a lot of things, how they think about democracies versus autocracies, but also how they think about supply lines and, and, and production. And you've seen this kind of move away from, from just-in-time delivery and, and a move towards resilience. Now, the military is slightly different. They do have big stockpiles of things. But again, you're seeing this kind of this shock with Russia's invasion of Ukraine that actually maybe we do need to rethink the way we've done things since the end of the Cold War. We do need bigger stockpiles, but also we need bigger spare capacity in the system, you know, again, this is this is another sort of parallel with the Second World War is that the United States, the Second World War basically dragged the United States out of the Great Depression to, to a large extent. But because the economy had been depressed, there was huge spare industrial capacity just waiting for, for something to be done and, and huge amounts of, um, of unemployed men or underemployed men and women, of course, uh, who could go into the factories and do this stuff. And that's just not uh, reflective of, of what Western economies look like today. Um, there is very little spare capacity. Um, and of course, everything is dispersed and globalized. So one of the big questions with, for the United States is is um, a huge number of the chips that go into things like the microchips, sorry, that go into things like Javelin missiles are produced in Taiwan and uh, South Korea, two countries which are obviously incredibly uh, exposed and vulnerable if the United States were to enter into a confrontation with China. Thank you very much uh, for that, Dan. Francis, um, I believe you have a few more updates for us that actually flow quite nicely from, from some of the things that Dan's been saying. Yes, they do. And I think it's it's worth that we, we draw attention to these on the back of what Dan was saying there, because US lawmakers have agreed to provide Ukraine with at least 800 million new dollars in addition to the security assistance guarantees that have already been made. And of course, this is significant because of 
the current precarious situation and for all of the reasons that Daniel was just talking about there, that this is an example of the kind of support that is required because in Europe there is unfortunately a lack of um, financial means, one could say, but certainly military means as well um, at the moment. Of course, the Finnish Prime Minister, as we spoke last week, flagged this, that there are serious concerns about um, capacity, military capacity issues in Europe, and we're relying on the United States to provide that support. And, you know, there are some commentators who say that really this, uh, whilst this is a fight that the West is right to be collectively supporting, that really Europe should not be reliant on the United States to be, uh, to be supporting Ukraine. Ukraine financially. Of course, the EU is doing a lot, but actually this is, be, this is the EU's fight. It matters far more to the EU, uh, the defence of, of its territory, than it does to the United States. So um, I think this, this, this should be seen in that context. What, interestingly as well, we're seeing that this is all coming under the auspices of the Fiscal 2023 National Defence Authorisation Act, that there's $858 billion, um, in sort of de- defence policies, et cetera, et cetera. And as part of that, the, they're boosting Taiwan. They're giving more billions in aid to Taiwan over several years. Now, why are they doing that? Well, we've seen, of course, as the context of, uh, of Ukraine, that there is a, a emerging concern that China, with its rather bellicose rhetoric with regard to Taiwan, may use this as a moment when the West is distracted to do some kind of invasion in the coming years there. So by b- bolstering support for Taiwan, it's making it clear to China that uh, that the West is watching there, and of course as well making it more difficult uh, to to for, for any possible potential invasion by China to be to succeed if you're funneling billions in in support to Taiwan. So I think we should just say that you know there's a lot going on in this space about uh, building capacity that Daniel was talking about, building building financial resilience, um, whether that be in Europe or in in nations that are sensitive on these matters. And uh, and it is the United States that's leading the front. It has to be said. Just one other story as well, which I think is interesting in the military context as well, which is that Poland is preparing to deploy the German-made Patriot air defense system on its territory. This comes, of course, on the back of the military uh, accident that we understand happened. Um, That seems to be the consensus now that the Ukrainian defense uh, missiles uh, misfired and, of course, landed in Poland and killed two people. And uh, as a consequence of this, the, the Germans have, have um, provided uh, this support for Poland. So it's a defensive measure that would enable them to to stop these missiles. I think it's just a further example of how Europe is trying to uh, put forward a united front on this and to um, work cooperatively. But for the reasons I was talking about earlier on, there are immense challenges in that as different leaders have different stances on the best way to proceed. And of course, as well, the uh, differences in opinion about the um, importance of sanctions on Russia in the long term. But this is, I think, another positive sign that should be said that uh, Germany has been willing to give these, this support to uh, to Poland because it not only would bolster them from accidental missiles from Ukraine, but of course is an effective, another effective deterrence for Russia. And I think it is really important to underline that people in Poland are very, very concerned about what is going on in 
Ukraine at the moment. They share a border, of course. They've taken in millions upon millions of Ukrainian refugees. But also, they know, if you speak to Polish people, they know what Russia is capable of. It doesn't shock them, the stories that we've been seeing of Ukraine. And so, naturally, they are one of the countries in Europe that has had the strongest line on on, on how Russia should be uh, deterred and, and have provided the most stern, steadfast support of Ukraine. Well, thank you very much, uh, Francis and Dan and earlier, Venetia, for your time today. I think we're unfortunately coming to the, to the, end, of the end of the episode today. So can I just get your, your final thoughts? What will you be uh, thinking of in the days to come and what would you really want our listeners to understand? Uh, shall I jump in here? Right. Um, yes. So um, I think, again, you know, we're talking about the 200th episode and, and looking at the big picture and, and the war entering into a, into a second year. Um, there was an interview that uh, Serhii Plochi, the uh, Ukrainian-American historian, um, who uh, with El País, Spanish newspaper, and he made a point which I think um, we perhaps all know but have not always had at the forefront of our minds, which is that ultimately whatever happens with territory, whatever happens with Crimea, whatever the, the borders of Ukraine end up looking like, it, it has won the war um, and it will... Uh, join the West, turn to the West, culturally, economically, geopolitically. And Russia, whatever um, paltry successes or not it, it gets out of this war, has lost in the long run. It's diminished economically, demographically. Um, its, its brand, if you want to use a slightly crass term, has, has been diminished massively. And, and Putin is and will continue to be a pariah on the global stage. Thank you very much, uh, Dan. Francis Sterney, would you like the very final thoughts? Well, thank you, David. I know I've been returning to this theme a lot recently, but I think it's because we're getting a lot more information on it. And, and I think it's right to draw attention to it. So I've been reading a story in the Associated Press uh, about the uh, hours after Russia invaded back in February and the reaction from health staff at a children's hospital in the, in the south of Ukraine, which started immediately secretly planning how to save the children at the hospital. They'd already heard uh, rumours and concerns that Russia was thinking of seizing orphan children and sending them to Russia. So uh, according to this report, the staff at the Children's Regional Hospital in Herzon began fabricating orphans' medical records to make it appear that they were too ill to move. And they've got an interview there with the head of intensive care. She says, we deliberately wrote false information that the children were sick and could not be transported. We were scared that the Russians would find out, but we decided that we would save the children at any cost. Now, of course, it's worth underlining here that we know of at least a, a thousand children who've been seized from schools and orphanages in Herzon. Um, there's much higher figures that have been also talked about of, of children being taken away, but we just don't know yet where they are or what those true figures may be. But um, we do know for certain that in Herzon there uh, have been at least 11 babies that were sent to Crimea. Um, perhaps as many as 50 children were evacuated on October, either to Russia or to, uh, to Crimea. 
And uh, there's descriptions in this article of, of how that occurred exactly. A bus came with the inscription Z, of course, being the, the symbol painted on Russian vehicles and, and simply took the children away. So, as I say, we don't know the full facts yet and the full scale of this. But whenever we get a shard of information like this, which, of course, is being discovered as territory is liberated and journalists are able to get there and interview people, then I think it's right to draw attention to it because, I, as I continue to say, I think this will be one of the great um, unknown or underreported aspects of this war when we look back on it in the years to come. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.